Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 8 through 10. It's reproduced in the bulletin, or you can follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. If you have the whole passage in front of you, then you uh, know that uh, this is the great chapter on, uh, on faith, sometimes referred to as Faith's Hall of Fame. Fame, 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 fame. <laughs> and uh, let us hear the word of the Lord. By faith, Abraham, so which mic is that, me or that? What do you think? Better? Oh, better. Okay. Take two. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. There are two or three themes uh, I've uh, endeavored to uh, hammer home, (laughs) you might say, and so I hope you'll be patient as these are repetitiously redundant over and over again. Uh, This chapter, I would suggest, is to give us illustrations of not extraordinary faith, as if to set before us a standard that is unattainable, uh, leaving us with a feeling of hopelessness. But all these are, are given to encourage us in terms of ordinary faith. And I've been thinking about that a lot uh, because it seems as if there's something missing. And there is. And I, I hope to uh, correct that uh, this morning. Uh, when I say that these are all examples and illustrations of ordinary faith, ordinary does not mean easy. Ordinary does not mean easy. Ordinary faith will encounter opposition. There will be opposition from the flesh, our own sinful, doubting hearts. Uh, There will be opposition from the world, trying to uh, shape us into its mold, rather than to conform us to the image of Christ by the word and spirit. And of course, we will encounter opposition from the devil, as has already been referenced this morning. Did God really say... And so ordinary faith is not easy. It will encounter opposition. Ordinary faith will occasionally, in some circumstances and cases, be persecuted. And in some cases, may even uh, require martyrdom and death. And so, again, let me propose that faith is simple, but faith is not easy. Faith is simple. Here it is. Trust God 
and do everything he says. That's it. That is the long and short of faith. Trust God and do everything he says. Simple, but not easy. If I may, by way of illustration, direct your attention to baseball. What is the object of baseball? What's it all about? A guy is going to throw the ball, and you're supposed to hit it. That's not complicated, (laughs) all right? But as simple as that is, it is not easy. And the testimony of how not easy baseball is, the most wildly successful baseball players in history fail 70% of the time. Only 30% of the time do they do this simple thing. See the ball, hit the ball. And yet even with that drastic rate of failure, that's who's in baseball's hall of fame. And so I believe faith is like that. It is simple, but it is not easy. There will be opposition, difficulty, and persecution. These examples of ordinary faith, the reason why I am persuaded that that's the intent of the author is because the context of Hebrews 11 is Hebrews 10. (laughs) And coming out of Hebrews 10, in in Hebrews uh, 10.38, the writer says, my righteous one shall live by faith. That should have something of a familiar ring to it. Paul in Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. This is something of an echo or a repetition of that great theme of Scripture. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And having put forth this, this great doctrine of our salvation, which also appeared in Romans 4, by the way, not by works, but but by faith. Having put that forth, now the writer is going to explain what this saving faith looks like. This is what saving, we're saved by faith in Christ. This is what it looks like. What did faith look like for Abel? Faith looked like worshiping from a sincere heart in spirit and in truth. That's what Abel did by faith. We can do that. What did faith look like for Enoch? Enoch walked with God by faith. We can do that. We can have an intimate, close, constant, consistent uh, fellowship with God. What did faith, the faith of Noah, look like? Noah lived in the reality of an unseen impending judgment. And he fled for refuge to God's provision to spare him and his family from the coming judgment. That's what Noah's faith looked like. That's the age in which we live. We live in the context of an impending, we don't know how soon, but certain, unseen at the present time, judgment. And we have fled for refuge to the provision of God, who is Jesus Christ, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and covers us and protects us from the judgment to come. And so we see all of these as examples of ordinary, not easy, but ordinary faith. Abel, Enoch, Noah, and then today we come to the one who, I just looked again, three times in Romans 4. The man who is called the father of us all. It's not talking about Jews only. Talking about Jews and Gentiles. The one who is called the father of our faith, and that is Abraham. And so as we want to look today at the expression of Abraham's faith as he is set forth before us as an example of this is what faith looks like. I want to begin by saying that faith, Abraham's faith, originated. Where did it come from? It originated in the predestinating, electing grace of God and not from anything in Abraham. Abraham's story in the Old Testament uh, begins in Genesis 12.1. But his backstory, that's a big thing now. There's all these movies that have stories, and now they're coming out with all these other movies that have backstories to this character or that character. What's Abraham's backstory? Abraham's backstory is in Joshua 24.2. Joshua 24.2. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. Abraham's father was a pagan. Abraham was a pagan. Abraham's children would have been raised as pagans. They would live as pagans, they would die as pagans, and they would continue to be pagans if it had not been for the Lord. Nothing in Abraham in any way would have moved or induced him to seek God as a pagan. But with that backstory of pagans uh, of Abraham's childhood and upbringing and indoctrination and discipleship in paganism from his faithful pagan father, Terah, against that we read in Genesis 12:1, now the Lord God said to Abram. All right? God called to Abram. I'm just going to keep saying Abraham, even though you know the name change. Abraham did not cry out to God. God chose Abraham. Abraham did not choose God. It's not that Abraham exercised faith which sprang from who knows where, and cried out to God, and God heard and responded. Uh -uh. No, God initiated his merciful grace into the heart of Abraham, and then Abraham responded to the grace and the call of God. When we get to the New Testament, we read exactly the same thing concerning our saving faith in Jesus Christ. These are just a few verses from Ephesians chapter 2. They will be familiar to many, if not all of you. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to walk. You were dead, as was I. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of his love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's true of us today. It was true of Abraham in the day in which he lived. God sovereignly decided and chose to make himself known to Abraham. Again, we see Jesus saying the same thing in Matthew chapter 11. This is Jesus. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Only those to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father and the saving plan of God in Christ or those who come to see, understand, believe, and be saved. And we could do a Sunday school quarter, we could do a series, none of that's going to happen. But the doctrine of God's gracious electing mercy is laid down in line upon line upon line upon line through the whole of the scriptures, from Abraham to Christ to, to, to Revelation. And then what is one of my favorite parts of this section of scripture in which Jesus says, no one knows the Father except those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you know what the next verse is? Jesus barely draws a breath between those words and these. Come to me. Who? All you who are elect. Is that what he says? Come to me all, any of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Of course, there's a lot of junk on Facebook, but there's some good stuff out there. And I read this one this week, and I liked it a lot. God is 100% sovereign. Man is 100% responsible. I couldn't put it any better than that. It's the, it's the Bible's teaching. The full willful responsibility of every human being concerning their words, thoughts, actions, and attitudes, and the absolute sovereignty and overruling control of God concerning all things, and in particular, salvation. Abraham's faith didn't originate with him. It originated in the sovereign, electing mercy and love of God. Next, we need to move on. Abraham had faith in what was peculiar not in what was familiar. This is a really odd command that God gives to Abraham. Go from your country, this is Genesis 12, 1 again, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Or in verse 8, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. That's peculiar. But he obeyed 
That's ordinary faith. I am sure it was not easy. <laughs> I can think of all sorts of reasons why Abraham might object. Show me where I'm going, and then I'll follow you there. What does God say? Just go, and then I'll show you where you're going. Eh, we don't like that. We want to know stuff first. It's all about trust. God is trying to raise us up as little children to trust him. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Will you trust me in this? And Abraham did, and he obeyed. And we see in Abraham's faith that his faith is a walking forward. It's always moving forward, eyes on God, eyes on God's promises, eyes on God's kingdom. It's not moving forward and looking back with longing or with regret or with anxiety. I believe there's a portion of scripture that calls us to remember Lot's wife who looked back and received the consequences. No, the walk of faith is a walk looking forward. And as we look forward, there are things that God may, and most of the time, calls us to leave behind. He calls us to leave behind our old life of sinning without regret. <laughs> and in some cases, he calls us to leave behind friends, and even family members who will not go along with us as we are on our way to the promised land. We can't stay with unbelieving friends and family and go forward with Christ where he calls us to. Abraham is an example of that kind of faith. And again, this is exactly what Jesus said, is it not? You know where I'm going. Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. It is hard to leave things behind. It is hard to leave the pleasurableness of sin behind. <laughs> but we're called to leave that behind and go forward. It is hard to leave uh, friends and family. It's emotional loss. This is emotional stuff to believe in and follow Jesus. There, there's an emotional uh, cost. There's the security of the known and the fear of the unknown. If I follow Jesus, what will happen? Will this happen? Will, will that happen? But again, brothers and sisters, if you think it was hard for Abraham to put a dagger in his past, you haven't heard anything yet. It's one thing to put a dagger in your past. Something else when God calls you to put a dagger in your future. It's one thing. To put a dagger in Ur of the Chaldees. It's another thing. To be told to put a dagger in your child. And that's what's coming. 
next Lord's Day when we look further into the faith of Abraham. He left what was behind in order to go to what God promised. Abraham's faith was not in what was passing, but what in permanent. Faith in what was permanent, not in what was passing. Hebrews 11.9, by faith he made his home in the promised land uh, as a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob. <laughs> this world is not the promised land. And what I think is kind of funny, even the promised land was not the promised land. <laughs> that wasn't the promised land. He's, he's promised the promised land. But we're told that the promised land that he was promised is not the promised land that he was looking forward to. He was looking forward to a different promised land, a better promised land, a glorious promised land. It never hurts for us to be reminded this world is not our home. We're only passing through. I read in one book a while ago, uh, the, the writer simply said, you know, we're not home and this isn't heaven. <laughs> and that is a perspective that we need to be reminded of. God says, Abraham, someday all of this land is going to be the land of promise for your descendants, but not for you. You won't get to experience the land of promise, but I promise you, says God, your descendants will get to experience it. How does Abraham react to that? Well, that stinks. <laughs> I want the promised land now. I want to be free from my enemies now. Uh, I want to be in control of my life and where I live and what's going on now. It's like, what good is it to live here now if I can't make it my home? Abraham never got, never received, never experienced everything that God has promised in his life. He died not having experienced it, but you know what? He was okay with that. He didn't die in distress or angst or depression or discouragement or anger. He, he died in peace because he believed the promise of God, and as it says in our text, he was looking forward to a time when he would live in a promised land whose foundation and architect was God and not just mankind. See if I could put it this way. Suppose I could tell you with infallible certainty that Christ was returning one week from today and the end of all things, the end of, the end of time, the resurrection, final, all those things are happening one week from today. Okay? Suppose your house burned to the ground tomorrow. But you knew that in six more days, the whole world was about to be burned to the ground to make room for the new heaven. And the new. How upset would you be about the loss of your home? Yeah, somewhat you would be. How much effort would you invest in building a new home when you know with infallible certainty in six days the new heavens and the new earth is coming? 
It would affect your outlook on the disaster of your home being burned down. I would put it another way. Suppose you knew with infallible certainty a week from today would be the resurrection. The end of all things, the coming of Christ, those who are here changed and the dead raised uh, back to life. Suppose you knew that a week from today. And on this Wednesday, a loved one died. That would be hard. You would, you would be rightly sad. But you'd be sad in the context of, I'm going to see him again in four days. I'm going to see him again in four days. They just died, but the resurrection is in four days. Wouldn't that affect how you grieve and what you think, knowing that God has promised these things? We don't know. We don't know when that end is coming. It could come in a week, I think, maybe. <laughs> we don't, but we do know with infallible certainty that it is coming. And because we know that it is coming, that, that, that should affect the two things I thought of in thinking about all of these things was perspective and priority. It doesn't mean our homes are not important. They are. It doesn't mean our loved ones aren't important. They are. But in the midst of loving our loved ones and properly taking care of our homes, we should always carry around perspective, an eternal perspective. Or again, as I heard one, it's actually a paraphrased translation of the Bible. Just remember, no matter how long you live, you're going to be dead a lot longer. <laughs> Eternal uh, perspective and priority. What's my priority? Knowing which things are permanent and lasting and which things are temporary and passing. Abraham got it. Abraham got it. He went to the promised land knowing he wouldn't experience everything that God had promised in this life but knowing that he absolutely would experience everything that God had promised in the coming ages. And then his faith was in what was promised and not what was present. This is verse 13 in Hebrews 11. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. If we think that God's promises pertained primarily or exclusively, if we think all of God's promises pertain to us, primarily or exclusively, in this life, then they don't happen. Our whole life is going to be in a spirit of disappointment, just disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Again, this is an aside. I'll just throw it in there. This is where a large cross-section of Christendom, of evangelical Christianity, Get the promises of God right, but the timing of God wrong. God's will is for you to be healed. God's will is for you to be strong. God's will for you is to be free from illness. God's will for you is to be prosperous. I believe it. <laughs> it's promised by God. But not in this life. <laughs> That's not the promise. I heard it put this way. Somebody said, our Lord Jesus was a king. We should live like kings. Then I heard another pastor's rebuttal to him that obviously I've never forgotten. Our Lord Jesus was a king. 
we should live the way the king lived. How did the king live? No place to lay his head. A carpenter, itinerant preacher, helping the poor, compassionate on the afflicted. That's how the king lived. That's how we should live. The promises of God to Abraham where all of these things will come true. Abraham believed that was his faith and trust in God. They will certainly and infallibly come true. All these didn't die thinking, oh man, I missed the best. No, they lived knowing the best is yet to come. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and confess that we do not trust you as we ought, and so we do not obey you as we should. And our lack of obedience is an evidence of our lack of faith. Forgive us, Father, for being so silly, and help us to trust you more and follow you more faithfully and consistently and closely